In the weeks to come, I'm going to have Mark keep reading that same text as just kind of a, uh, a reminder or a backdrop of everything we're going to be covering with the life of Joseph. So, knowing that, would you turn to chapter 37 in the book of Genesis? And as you're turning there, um, I should have said this last Sunday, uh, I just want to thank all of you who were involved in putting together the service for Ginger Huffman. Um, That was fast, uh, how quick that that needed to be pieced together. And all of the hands that went into putting that together and all the different people involved, um, just couldn't be more more thankful. So thank you for that. I think that... uh, she was rightly honored as well as the Lord. So let me pray and we'll come, come to his word. Father, Lord, you are the authority. You are the tender, loving, gracious, perfectly just authority. And so I pray, Father, that as we open up your word this morning, that which we see in the text of Scripture, Lord, we would submit to. And as we study and move forward looking at the life of Joseph and all the little different bits and pieces that's going to come out of this, Father God, that you and your kindness may transform our lives. Lord, help us not to come with a lack of faith to the, to the time in your word together, but come expectant to see what the sovereign of the universe might do through his spirit in his blood-bought people, through his inspired text. And Father, I, I am expectant. I'm excited. I, I, I want to walk through the rest of this book and... Father, see how you just might be working at PCBC from your word. So thank you, Lord. Thank you so much that we're gathered here again. This body is here. Um, I thank you for uh, the study this week in this text and all the different things that uh, kind of funnel to this one moment. So I pray, Father, that you would help me not to be a stumbling block to PCBC in this time in your word, but that I might be a servant. And I want to serve well, Lord. And so I pray that that you would help that to all come together well and the body would be fed and refreshed. So speak now, I pray, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to give you just kind of a quick uh, note as we move throughout this study in the life of, Gen- or in the life of Joseph. Um, as we walk through the life of Joseph, I know that myself and you as well will continually go, that points to Christ, and that points to Christ, and that points to Christ. The, the typology uh, of, of Joseph and how very, very much points to the Lord Jesus Christ, is all over throughout his life. One, one particular commentator, I think, drew up like about a hundred connections, some that are crystal clear and some maybe a magnifying glass to see, but nonetheless strove very hard to see Christ in the life of Joseph. At the same time, there are particular commentators. I was wrestling with one this week, not physically, 
but with what he wrote, um, where he said we don't have any right to see a connection to Christ in Joseph because the New Testament never makes that connection. I'm somewhere in the middle um, in the sense that I absolutely believe Christ is foretold and uh, typified in the life of Joseph. Maybe not in every way that this particular commentator saw, but nonetheless, I see that. But I want to kind of let you guys know that I'm not, I'm not dodging that. I just don't want, I want to go through the historical storyline of Joseph and then spend a number of sermons on the Christological aspect in Joseph's life after we finish Genesis, Okay. Because uh, I, I just, as the more I'm studying, the more I'm seeing how this points to the Lord Jesus Christ, and I want to spend some time in that, and I don't want to rush it. Rush sermons aren't much fun, right? Okay, yeah, whatever, you can agree or not, but it's not. <clears throat> but there's also a, a Bible study principle, a hermeneutic principle there, where let's be careful that we grasp the historical context before we rush to anything else. We want to know that. We do that in our Bible studies. I hope you do that in your Bible studies. That first things first, you want to know the plain meaning of the text and its historical context. Um, so that's how I'm going to be preaching through this. And then we'll do some uh, connections to the Lord Jesus post this study. With that, turn to chapter 37, verse 1. Jacob lived in the land of his fathers, sojourning in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pastoring, U-R, not O-R, the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons, because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors." But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field. And behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to, the, to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. And Joseph got the hint. Verse 9. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and the eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him. But his father kept the saying in mind. <clears throat> so that's what we're going to cover for today. And it's a, it's a very interesting text because it's really the, a bedrock or a foundation to the rest of our study. 
Because remember, it's no, no joke or no secret, rather, that we looked last week where this ends up. This ends up with the fulfillment of the dreams, all right? Um, if you haven't read Genesis 50, I encourage you to read Genesis 50. I just ruined the movie for you, all right? So, but as you walk through this, you will see that this is actually prophetic. This is foretelling what's going on here in the text. This jealousy uh, in the passage is one that is very fascinating and very, very intense. The reason I say that is because of what they do because of this envy. This envy and jealousy goes to such an extent that the desire in the hearts of his brothers is to do away with their brother. We'll get there next week. But first, I want you to consider with me, you guys, some reasons for brotherly envy. Some reasons for brotherly envy, all right? So look, think about this. I'm going to just kind of go through this list and spend some time on each one. Number one is Israel. Remember, Jacob's name has been changed to Israel. Israel's greater love for Joseph because he's the son of his old age. Look at verse 1. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. That's their home at this point. These are the generations of Jacob. Remember, if you want to kind of uh, get a, a short, shorthand sketch of Genesis, look at every time it says these are the generations of, and that will kind of just schedule out the book of Genesis. But typically, you are actually given the generations, given the names of the people. Here in this passage, we're not given that. Rather, we're giving more of a storyline, a, a, a bunch of events in the life of the family. It is going to tell us much about Jacob's family, but primarily from the scope of Joseph. So it's not going to tell us a whole bunch of interesting names that I get to read out loud to you. I'm sorry. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pastoring the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah. Remember, these are the maidservants of Rachel and Leah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report to them, to their father. Now, Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age. So there's particular affection shown this son that's different than the rest of the sons. The text says it is plain as day that, jo- that Jacob actually liked and loved Joseph more than the rest of the sons. Fatherly favoritism is all over in this text. So that's, that's point number one. When you, what, here's what I want you to do. This is kind of tricky because we usually make ourselves the heroes of the text, but we're not. We're sinners. I want you to put yourself in the sandals of the brothers, okay? Once you put yourself in the sandals of the brothers and think about this list and think about how this would affect these brothers. Number one, dad loves, dad loves Jacob or, or Joseph more than he does us. Number two, a son of Jacob's greatest love, Rachel, not of the concubines or the maidservants, Zilpah and Bilhah, Zilpah and Bilhah. It's no, it's no secret that as you travel through this storyline of Jacob, Rachel's his deepest, truest love. Rachel's the one that he worked 14 years for, right? The first seven weren't for Leah. They were, but they weren't. Then another seven to try to get Rachel. And the consistent language of Jacob towards Rachel is an absolute affectionate um, love for this woman. And so here's this boy the son of my favorite. So why would he not be my favorite? 
Number three, a coat, a particular garment is given as a gift to Joseph. If you look down um, verse three, the end of verse three, and he made him a robe of many colors. Um, so this, I hate to break this to you, but that's actually not necessarily in the Hebrew text, the many colors. It's actually more from the, the Septuagint and a few different things got pieced together. So then it came out in the King James translation, the coat of many colors. And many different Bible translations follow that. But a better translation or, a, or another translation will say that is actually a coat with sleeves. Now you go, well, that's not as fancy. <laughs> well, maybe not. Um, but the idea is a coat of distinction, a gift of distinction given to Joseph that marked him as a different man from the rest of his brothers. So dad says, I love him more. He's the son of the wife that I love the most. And I'm giving him a gift. A, a part of the Hebrew language here is the idea that it, it went to his palms or to his feet. The idea of a long coat that wasn't there for work, but was there more as like the one who's going to oversee the work. Typically, the guys were wearing coats, but it went further up, and so that wasn't the garment they were wearing. So picture this. The brothers already know. Dad loves him more. He's the son of of Rachel. We know that he loved her best. Did you hear today what Dad did? He even had it wrapped. And Joseph opened it, and with joy, thanked his father for such a gift. He's rubbing it in pretty good here. Next, a position of leadership accountability given to the younger. This is a fascinating thing because notice who comes back to give the report. Not the older, but the younger. So now I've got a coat of a marked man. I'm more loved by him. And dad expects me to come home and be responsible to tell him about this, what's taken place with my brothers. And another translation, a better translation, is he came and gave an evil report. The idea is he's coming and giving him a report of what's been taking place out and about with his brothers. Now, real quick, just for kicks, if you're an older brother, would you raise your hand? Okay. Just wondering how you're feeling. All right, let me keep going. Next, Jacob listened to Joseph's report about the brothers. He didn't scoff. He didn't throw it off. He didn't do anything of that nature. It says that he came and he told the report and the father listened. Another one that I'm kind of drawing this out, but I think it's there, uh, not necessarily for the envy, but certainly a piece, is that in Genesis 39, turn with me to Genesis 39, verse 6. That's not the right verse. There we go. No, it is the right verse. Okay, 39.6. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge, and because of him he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. Let's just throw a little salt in the wound. Dad's favorite, absolutely loved by dad more than anybody else, the son of my favorite wife, which sounds strange just to say that. Amber's my favorite wife. Yeah, so, um, 
He's given a point of, he's given a point of, of leadership as he goes out. He comes back and gives an explanation, an evil report to his father. And on top of all that, he's good looking. So you think of these brothers as, as just this piles on. Lastly, we're told the brothers were incapable of speaking kindly to Joseph. Incredible envy, jealousy, anger, frustration, irritation. And let me just say, beloved, that one of the biggest instigators of that is Jacob. Now, I'm not saying Jacob was wrong. I'm not saying he was evil necessarily. I don't know the motives of the man per se. All I'll say is that if Joseph was given some of these places, but the father had a continual love for all the brothers equally, so on and so forth, it probably would have smoothed this over. But Jacob is making it abundantly apparent, I love this son more than the rest of you, which stirs the pot. But here's another piece I want you to think about. We must remember the issue of parental favoritism and sibling jealousy runs deep in this family. Abraham loved Isaac more than he loved Ishmael. Remember when when God comes to him and he says, I want you to take your son, your only son, the one whom you love, and sacrifice him unto me. And you see the treatment of Hagar and Ishmael. Isaac loved Esau. Rebekah loved Jacob. Jacob loves Joseph more than the other brothers. I don't, don't think that, that we, I, we should not miss that little point there where we're told about this particular love for Jacob and for Esau. Father loves the dad because he goes out and he kills and he brings back the meat and he's a man of the field. Mom loves Jacob. He's more of a, a guy that dwells in tents, more of a homebody, domestic, whatever word you want to throw in there. And now we see Jacob say that he loves Joseph the most because he's the son of his old age. You see this thread? It's very fascinating to me. But it's okay, because Joseph is going to help out here with uh, some dreams. Look at verse, um, verse 5. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. You'll see this progression, and it's interesting in the passage how it continually progresses, where he did this, this was done, and they hated him. This was done, and they hated him even more. This was done, and they hated him even more, even more, even more. There's this, this buildup in the brothers, where their actions, they aren't so strong until this continually reaches that blowing point of everything going on with Joseph. Look at these dreams. They're very simple and very clear what takes place here. Verse 6. He said to them, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. Now, I don't know about you, I have three older brothers, <clears throat> and it's, it, there's, there's, there's some comic relief here in that I can picture the faces of those brothers, and they just happen to look exactly like my three older brothers, as he tells this dream, and the, seeing their faces and just a little bit of smoke coming out of the ears, 
and he shares what took place here. Very simple. We're binding sheaves, putting all these things together, wrapping rope around it, and then all of a sudden, mine goes upright, and all of yours bow before him. What on earth do you guys think that could mean? So they hated him even more. Verse 9. Then he dreamed another dream. And he told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold. It's interesting how he throws that in there a couple times. Behold, I've had a dream, and behold, here it is. The sun, the moon, and the 11 stars, or and 11 stars were bowing down to me. But when he told his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, what is this dream that you have dreamed? So the brothers quickly interpreted the dream. Did you notice that with the first dream that he had? Are we going to bow down to you? Shall you rule over us? They get the idea that, okay, the sheaf represents you, Joseph, and the other sheaves, they represent us, and we're going to be bowing down in front of you. You really think that's going to happen, youngster? Not in your life. Irate, just like, oh, this guy just never, he just keeps coming back with this stuff. Not only the coat, not only dad's love, not only dad's treatment, not only the the ugly report that he shared, but now he's having dreams where he's going to rule over us. And that's the interpretation. It's crystal clear interpretation. And then he has the gall to come back and then make reference to the sun and the moon. This is in reference to mom and dad, as we see Jacob interprets, and the 11 being the rest of the brothers, and they'll all bow down. And the the churning within the sibling rivalry is just intense right here. In this first dream and in the second dream, the content within these dreams was obviously prophetic. Now, remember, remember, beloved, chapter 45 and chapter 50, verse 20, are guideposts through our study. The content within these dreams was obviously prophetic. Looking forward to the outcome of Joseph's long journey. The truths in these dreams must have mystified Joseph and perhaps gave him extra strength and courage in the times of trials. See, I don't, I don't, I don't think that he had the dream and then Joseph forgot the dream. I think God, in his grace, gave him the dream and continually brought the dream back to his mind. It's not in the text. I just have a tough time thinking he would have a dream like that and then go away saying, mm, I'm sure it's bad pizza. Not a big deal. But at this point in the story, these dreams brought on nothing but disdain and hatred towards Joseph. All right, so let's take a pause in the study this morning. And I've got to pose this question because um, I was taught a certain thing growing up. And as in reading commentators this week, I found out that that's a majority report. And when I find myself at odds with the majority report, it always causes me to have to go a little bit deeper and ask some pointed questions, okay? And this is in reference to Joseph's motives. See, as you read this text, here's what is the norm, okay? This is what I've read this week, and this is what I've heard most of my life. Joseph is typically characterized as an arrogant, boastful 17-year-old, a cocky kid. One who ate up daddy's favoritism. Enjoying the 
the ratting out of his brothers to his father because he looks better and they look worse. And Joseph taking evil pleasure in sharing his dreams, watching his brothers cringe and shrink in their seat as he rubbed it in. It's a common interpretation to say that this was the one mark on Joseph's life. That's a very common interpretation. I read that this week. Really good Bible teachers, like some of my very favorite Bible teachers, giving this explanation that Joseph has a long line of godliness and obedience, but there's one mark on his life, and it was his evil character as a 17-year-old with his sons. The text makes zero reference to that motivation. The text makes zero reference to that motivation for Joseph. Now, I, I, I make that point because I want you just I want that to settle on you. And here's why, you guys. There's a, there's, a, there's a really important principle, and it's one that I personally have been wrestling with um, throughout the study of Genesis because it's so thick in narrative, okay? So thick in narrative. Here's, here's a guiding principle in your study of biblical narrative. Be so careful, be very, very careful to press motives upon biblical characters that seems to be the motive of the biblical character where the scripture says nothing about the motive of the biblical character. Here's how it's tricky, and this is done by preachers often where somebody goes, the text doesn't say, but we can be sure that. And that's where you, student of the word, should say, can we be sure of that? Really? Text says nothing, no ink, pure white space. And so I just, I found it so interesting in the study to read how far some students of the word, godly, godly students of the word, went in reference to painting a picture of Joseph as an arrogant, cocky youth. Where no. Excuse me, where nowhere in the text does the Lord ever make the comment that this was wrong or evil or wicked or anything of that nature. All right, so there's one side, right? Let me be equal. Let me go to this other side. It doesn't say it wasn't either. It doesn't say that Joseph was pure in all his doings here, necessarily. So I want to be careful not to say, here's the, here's the, you know, the good cowboy with the white hat, the, the, the perfect guy. In the, script, in the Old Testament as well. I'm not ready to say that either because that would totally go away from what I believe about the sinfulness of man, the lost state of man, the fact that he is dead in sins and trespasses apart from faith. I would be wrong to do that too. So I can't paint him as the perfect one, but I think it's very, very tricky when we paint him as being evil in this passage in particular. But you know how easy it is to read a passage like this and press motives and say, I know what he was doing. Matter of fact, reminds me of one of my siblings. (laughs) Let us be careful, you guys, when we're reading through narrative, if the scripture gives no indication of the motive of the individual to tack our own motive onto him. Because that's very, very tricky. All right. I want you to look at the dad's response. A godly father's response, in my opinion. Verse 10. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, what is this dream that you have dreamed? Now again, we're not sure exactly the tone. Is he inquisitive? 
Is he angry? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? Now, at very worst, I would argue, what we could see from the text is that we could paint Joseph perhaps as a fairly naive individual. At the very worst. Was it wise for him to say, hey guys, I know you wish I was dead, but I just had a drink. And then the next day, I had another one. At some point you go, dude, take a hint. Seriously. They hate your guts. They don't want to look at you. They can't speak peacefully to you in any way. Stop, man. But what I see in Joseph, as best as I can understand, is he's mystified by the truth of the dream. It struck him in a profound way. To the point he felt compelled to tell his brothers and to tell his father. And so is it possible that he's a naive youth that was so struck by this that he felt he needed to communicate it? That's where my money is, if I betted. Yeah, you know what I'm saying. Um, But that's my best understanding of the character of this man. Now, here's another piece, real quick, just to give you another chunk of argumentation. I'd find it hard to believe that he's a vindictive, evil, sneaky youth who likes to rub it into his brothers, and then we see godly character the rest of his life. That doesn't compute for me. When this guy has an opportunity with Potiphar's wife and his immediate reaction is, I can't sin against you, I can't sin against the Lord. And not only that, but throughout the rest of his life, we see impeccable godly character to then read a bunch of motives in here, I think is out of sync. So, I rest my case. But the father's response You guys, you know, we spent so much time together with this man, Jacob. From this pulpit, your Bible's open, talking about this guy, Jacob. We've seen him stretched in so many ways. I mean, incredible ways, where the Lord's made himself known in powerful ways. We've seen him make mistakes. We've seen him mess up. We've seen him struggle. We've seen him wrestle with the Lord, come away limping after wrestling with the Lord, facing Esau, dealing with Laban, all of this that God's done in this man, and now his boy comes to him and says, Dad, I had a dream last night. Dad, I had another dream last night. And Jacob has a couple other options. He can say, nah, go back to bed. You know, you're, you're being silly. Or he could have said, son, that's incredible. Since you're my very favorite, let's talk about the dream. I think he's pretty wise here. Because what's he do? Jacob's not an unspiritual man. This is what we've got to remember. Jacob is not an unspiritual man. He has deep, involved history with the Lord. He's received revelation from the Lord. So most likely, Jacob recognized the growing disdain for Joseph and his sons. And possibly, and I say possibly because I don't know, seeking to make peace, he corrected Joseph. But did you notice the last little thing thrown in there? It doesn't say he corrected him and walked away. What does it say? It says he corrected him, but kept this saying in his mind. Why? You ever had a dream that was weird? You ever tell anybody about those dreams? No, we try not to, but... 
a dream that was just kind of odd, and, and you typically when you share it with somebody, they go, oh, that's kind of weird, huh. and you can drop it. Why do you suppose, and a rhetorical question just for your, your pondering, why do you suppose Jacob hung on to this? Why do you suppose the text doesn't say he completely threw off what was said by his boy and he walked away? I think because Jacob not only knows Joseph, but I think Jacob knows the Lord. And in this text, I think uh, we have a little picture that Joseph, in utter sincerity, shares what he saw in this dream to his father. And Jacob has a very, very long track record with Almighty God. And so, what? Mom and I and the kids, we're all going to bow down to you? And then he turns around and he goes, but, <laughs> I wonder. And so all we're told is this little statement that he kept it in his mind and walked off. I don't know you guys, but there's a part of me that wonders when everything comes to fruition and all this funnels down to Joseph saving his brothers and his dad and his family, if Jacob recalls this instant. It doesn't say, and I know that. But why would we be told that he kept it in mind? Let me give you a couple points of application. I usually have one. I got five. It's just been a good week, so let me give you five. These are just some things I draw from the text that I think can have some application to your life. May the Spirit of God do what he wants to do with his word. But number one, There's a continual biblical principle regarding the sin of favoritism or showing partiality. Remember that text in James where it says to show no partiality and it gives the image of the wealthy Christian that walks into the church and you have him seated in the better part and the the dirty sinful or dirty uh, uh, poor one comes in, you have them, here you can sit at my feet. There's a sinful aspect to favoritism and to partiality. It's fascinating how um, you can track this throughout your Old Testament and see some incredible events of parental favoritism and really the negative that it produces. And so there's there's a true application there. I think all of us as believers need to be very careful to not just play favorites with our kids, with our friends, but ask the Lord how we might be used in the lives of everybody. That's not easy, and it's something we can scoff at fast, but it's also something that is, we are so susceptible to it, we cut off opportunities to be used by him in the lives of other people because they may be the ones that you're not necessarily wanting to go near or spend time with. Number two, the root of envy is found in an out-of-proportion sense of what one deserves and another receives it. So here's the brothers. That youngster should not get that. We should get that. And all we have to do is say, why? Slip them a piece of paper and say, why? Why should you get it? What makes you so much better that you deserve that and they don't deserve that? Beloved, that that sin of selfish ambition and envy is just, it's like... uh, What's that stuff called, Mitch? Uh, dry rot. Just destroys a home. 
It's always interesting when somebody goes, hey, I have, I have a, about a, a nickel shape of dry rot. Well, actually, no, it's a whole wall. You just notice the nickel shape, but the whole wall is being overtaken. Selfish ambition and envy can eat you alive. And the root of that is the actual expectation that I deserve better than what I got. But it's even more than that. I deserve more than what they got, or better than what they got, whoever the they is. Isn't it fascinating, beloved? Imagine if I asked you, hey, you get to make 10 rules for the United States, okay? 10 rules for the United States. That's it. Every, all, every single law is, is just scrapped in our country. And you get to give 10. How quick does your brain go to don't envy? And yet, there's where the Lord goes. Do not covet your neighbor's wife and his things. Apparently, it's pretty important to the Lord that he chalked that up there. So what severs envy? The truth of the gospel slays a sense of entitlement and selfish arrogance. The truth of the gospel slays entitlement. As soon as we see God rightly, and then I see Dan rightly, I know all I deserve is the wrath of Almighty God. I cannot look to God and say, you owe me. I can't. I have no ground, because as, as, as soon as I make that statement, the Lord says, and why? The only thing I can charge God that he owes me is his wrath because of his perfect justice. That's why, you guys, we believe in grace. It's all grace. That slays envy and selfish ambition. When somebody gets something or or has more prestige or, or whatever the case may be, what cuts that at its root is the gospel. But these brothers had a crazy out-of-proportion perspective on what they deserved and what Joseph preserved. Number three, this is very practical. Joseph certainly could have figured out a less showy way to reveal the dreams. As I read that and I hear the behold, the behold, and, and what he did, my mind goes, I wonder why he did that. And is there a way to express God's blessings in our life that really doesn't put somebody else down or maybe stir up jealousy in others? I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I want to be very careful when God's rich blessing comes into my life that I don't go around saying, hey, you guys won't believe this. I know he loves you, but I'm his favorite. I had a buddy that had a t-shirt that said that. God loves everybody, but I'm his favorite. (laughs) Number four. The Lord has complete freedom to choose who he wills to use and how for his good purpose. The Lord has, and my word is picked carefully, complete freedom to choose who he wills to use and how for his good purpose. Did you hear the the text that Brother Mark read for us in chapter 45 where he says, God has done this. God has used this. Remember, 
there is, uh, um, there's Joseph at the end of this whole thing, his suffering, where he is the mouthpiece that says the sovereign God has been in the details the entire time he selected what to do to bring to his good purpose. Nobody says that to Joseph. This is what's so profoundly beautiful, is it's Joseph who suffered at the hands of his brothers that then turns around to his brothers and says, God had an intent in this. God has absolute freedom to do whatever he wants, whenever he wants. And I always just say, if you struggle with that, let him know. Number five, the biblical truth of God's providence in no way makes godly living optional. Now, think carefully about what I just said. And this is, this is kind of connected to um, uh, last, last week's message. Biblical truth, the biblical truth of God's providential working in no way makes godly living optional. Remember Paul, Romans chapter 6, right? Shall we sin that grace may abound? What's Paul's answer? May it never be. See, I, I am in no way, beloved, saying, therefore, since the Lord is sovereign and providentially working all things together for good, therefore, your obedience doesn't matter. Therefore, laziness should follow suit. I'm not saying that. What I see in my Bible is I see God providentially at work accomplishing his good purpose. Simultaneously, I see a charge to his people to work hard. Good works are a good thing. Good works are a wonderful thing. They're just not a saving thing. You're not saved by good works. But I want to be so careful from this pulpit that I don't give the impression to you guys ever that therefore obedience is secondary. No, it's not. Your obedience is important. We don't say, well, the Lord's at work, so he'll accomplish it, so I don't have to follow him. That's not in your Bible. It's not there. There is a constant charge to the believer to work hard for the Lord, to serve the Lord, to walk in obedience to his word. But here's how I kind of my heart rests, is that as I strive hard and fail continually, I have an ever-consistent peace that I know there is a sovereign God in charge of this. And it's a weird life, is it not? That we live as believers because I say, God's in complete control, so I better get to work. You hear what I just said? But I, I am convinced that that's a biblical model. God's in complete sovereign control, so get to work. How we put that together is, uh, yeah, we all wrestle with that. Join the club. But I see it in the text with great clarity. So the fact that chapter 50, verse 20, Joseph says, all this came together beautifully. He doesn't therefore say, so brothers, all the sin you did, no big deal. He never says that. He just says he's not going to hold him accountable. Joseph is not going to give retribution to his brothers. He's going to trust the Lord. So there's still accountability for sin. There's still accountability for Joseph. Imagine this. Potiphar's wife comes up to Joseph, and she tries to allure him. And his response is, well, God's sovereign, so sure. Because I know he'll put all this together. It's not what he says. What does he say? How can I do that? How could I walk in disobedience like that? 
So I, I am a man that is consistently just, just bowing before the book, saying, Lord, there are things here that are so far Dan Mason's comprehension, how all this fits together, but I must be faithful to the text and what I see. There's a sovereign of the universe working all things together for good. Get to work. Walk in obedience. Serve him. And walk in a godly manner. Our Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the time in your word.